Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Priceless Podcast. My name is Mikhail Sechen, and this podcast is made in partnership with the European Forum of LGBT Christian Groups. If you haven't seen the last part, uh, I was talking to Kerstin Söderblom, and she was talking about queer theology. So we started to talk about the theory, and uh, at the end, we decided to make a second part where she'll give us some examples of how queer theology works. But before we go on, I forgot to tell you if you like to support this podcast or and or the European Forum, you can find how to do it in the podcast description as well as all the links that you need for this podcast. So let's go back to Kerstin. Hi, Kerstin, and welcome again. Hi, Michael. It's good to be here with you and discuss with you again. Looking forward to it. Let's go to uh, queer theology. Of course, um, people can watch the first part to find out a little bit more about queer theology, what it means to you, the theory behind it. And you said some very interesting things about why queer theology is so not just important to you, but what why we can benefit as queer people from uh, queer theology. So can you give us today, well, can you, you already agree that you will. So can you start with giving us a nice example of how queer theology works? Yes, I can. I actually brought three stories and we see how it goes. My first one would be about Joseph in the Old Testament. Uh, we can read about uh, Joseph and his brothers and his parents, Jacob and Rachel, uh, in the book of Genesis, in the 30th and 40th chapter. So um, Joseph is a very, very interesting figure in the Old Testament and uh, well known for many, at least those who went to kindergarten or to some, uh, you know, um, church and uh, children's um, services or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I will tell you the story. That's what I do now. I summarize uh, the story. And in between, I give some comments from uh, a more distanced um, perspective. Mm -hmm. And that's how I try to present a little of what it is, this queer relecture of a biblical text. If you want to read the story from the Bible, you can find uh, the passage uh, where you can find it in the podcast description. So, Yes. So I can give you my summar summary, which is, of course, shortened and then uh, filled with my personal comments. Mm. Okay, we talk about Joseph. Who was Joseph? Well, he was a calm and dreamy young man. That's what the Bible says. He made up stories, he told stories, and he dreamt a lot. And he stayed with his parents, Rachel and Jacob, at the tents. His brothers, and he had in the end 11 brothers, some younger, most of them older than him, preferred to play around looking for adventures, what the real, you know, male young people do. 
as a young youth, Joseph still had to guard sheep with his brothers. That was the task of the brothers. One day, the brothers slaughtered an animal, even though the father, Jacob, had forbidden it to them. Joseph was horrified and told his father about it. That, of course, was not such a good idea because the brothers uh, were very angry at him. Why would he even tell his father? Well, he did. As a present and as a thank you gift, his father gave him a colorful skirt. And Joseph liked this uh, colorful skirt that his father gave him. He was very proud of it. A little later, that's how it's said in the Bible, Joseph had two dreams about his family. The first one was about his brothers, and then the second one about his parents, and all of them were bowing to him, you know. Mm. And that's, of course, a very strange dream or two strange dreams. And as a result, the brothers became even more angry with mm. him. Because why should they bow to Joseph? You know, why should they do that? I mean, they were powerful and strong. They were the real ones, you know, that were uh, running around and hunting and doing all the, the tough stuff that uh, boys do. Well, sometimes later, that's how the story continues, Joseph was called to join his brothers in the fields. When he got there, the brothers overpowered him and bet him. They took off his beloved skirt and pushed him into a pit. Later, they sold the brother for 20 pieces of silver to an Egyptian merchant who passed by with a caravan. The brothers showed their father the bloody skirt, which they had smeared with animal blood, and told Jacob, the father, that his son Joseph was dead. That's the first part of the story, how it is told in the Bible. Now I continue with a little discovery of some uh, scholars, some biblical scholars. They discovered, uh, not only queer scholars, by the way, that mm -hmm. the expression that is used for Joseph's skirt, the Hebrew word ketonet, Hassim mm. names a dress of a king's daughter, mm. a princess. And this rarely used expression is used, for example, in the second book of the prophet Samuel in the 13th chapter for a dress of a princess. Mm. Joseph wore a dress of a princess. Mm. Impossible. A son of Jacob in women's clothes. Mm. That's, of course, a comment from today. A male hero with feminine features? Impossible. This information did not fit into the male imagery of biblical scholars, and it did not fit into anywhere and anyone, mm. because uh, it was just not foreseen that a boy was wearing a princess skirt. Accordingly, the information was neglected in the process of interpretation during the centuries and even suppressed. That's just my first comment yeah. to this story. Now, a question. Where did the brother's brutality come from? 
Why did the brothers violently beat Joseph? They humiliated him, tore his coat apart and threw Joseph into a pit, finally sold him. Where did that hatred come from? Of course, we have some ideas in the text. He, he was Joseph seemed to have been arrogant and dreamt those crazy dreams, but that doesn't explain the hatred, the violence that was there. The biblical text at the same time made it very clear when you read it carefully that Joseph was different, calmer, more dreamy, maybe in nowadays language more feminine. In addition to the irritation and jealousy of the brothers, maybe it was the fear of the brothers of this strange brother, somehow strange, somehow different. Did the brothers distance themselves for their brother's otherness? Joseph, in any case, was not allowed to be what he was, sensitive, full of dreams and stories, and uh, not so adventurous, not so daring. He didn't hunt, he didn't play in the fields. He was sitting by the tents, dreaming. He didn't have this physical strength, not the spirit for fight, and not this instinct for power. That made him different. And um, so I continue with uh, my thoughts about the story. I will mm -hmm. continue the, to tell the story, but I allow myself to get, get back and forth with interpretation and resonance of the text and the text itself. I would like to quote a black poet from Philadelphia. His name is J. Mays III. Um, and he ha has uploaded a YouTube video um, where he deals with the story of Joseph. Um, this poet, this black poet, uh, calls himself a transgender queer person. And he carefully studied this story of Joseph. And he wrote um, a little poem about Joseph. And here comes the first part. I quote it. We will also give the, uh, the source and uh, yep. somewhere the link. Joseph, Josephine Joe, you wore the skirt with pride, openly, without shame. I'm sorry what happened to you afterwards. Joe, when your brothers saw you in all your shine, in your flowing dress, they got angry. I'm so sorry you got hit. I'm so sorry that you were bleeding that they tore your dress and smeared it with the red paint of your swollen veins. Mm -hmm. Unquote. Okay, so much for another resonance, uh, poetic resonance to, uh, to that story from a queer eye, from a queer angle. But for me, it's important to say the betrayal of the brothers was not the end of that biblical story. And I would like to continue to tell you that story. Joseph many of you know, was brought to Egypt and sold to a man called Potiphar, the supreme commander of the pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt at the time. Joseph worked for this guy. He was basically a slave until Potiphar's wife fell in love with him. That's at least the notion in the biblical text. She made several advances to Joseph, all of which Joseph refused. Uh, so she finally accused Joseph of raping her, and Joseph was thrown into prison. 
And now we hear about Joseph being in prison. Here again, he met a lot of people and they were dreaming and he interpreted their dreams. And he seemed to have done that well. So that was just his talent. He knew how to do it. He had this kind of intuition. And uh, later it's called, it's said in the story uh, that the Pharaoh dreamt uh, certain dreams himself. And he called Joseph out of the prison in order to ask him uh, what those dreams could mean. Because he had heard that there was somebody in prison that was able to interpret dreams. So he was taken out of the prison and Joseph listened to the dreams and tried to interpret them. The dreams were um, strange one again. Uh, the first dream was about seven fat and seven skinny cows. The skinny cow ate the fat. And the second dream was about seven years of fat corn and seven years of thin corn. And the thin devoured the fat. So Joseph interpreted uh, both dreams in the way that he said to the Pharaoh, well, you will see seven years of good harvest in Egypt, and after that there will be seven years of famine and no good harvest due to heat and lack of rain. And therefore I advise you that you should store uh, some grain and harvest uh, in your storerooms for the bad years to come. And uh, Pharaoh thought that was a very smart idea, and that's what he did. And actually, in the years to come, it happened exactly like uh, Joseph uh, previewed. There were good years of harvest, and after that, there was uh, famine. So when the Pharaoh noticed that uh, Joseph was such a good advisor and smart with interpreting dreams and had a good intuition, he had him taken out of prison and uh, made him the second man in the Egypt hierarchy. So it was uh, directly after the pharaoh was Joseph as the second man. And while other peoples around Egypt were suffering from famine, Egypt was, had sufficient food because of their stock economy. So to continue that story and to come to the conclusion, the word quickly got around among the neighboring peoples of Egypt, also Israel and all the, the other countries, that Egypt had, still had food uh, because they had uh, stocked it and had stored it. So also, uh, as the story goes, the, Joseph's brothers came to Egypt in order to buy food and grain from the pharaoh. And Joseph, as the second man in Egypt, was the negotiator. So he met his brothers again. But the, he, Joseph, recognized his brothers immediately. But the brothers didn't recognize him because they, of course, had no, uh, no imagination that he should be the big second man in Egypt. Why should they? So... Um, but Joseph didn't say anything. They had a lot of uh, a big and long process of negotiations and how to come back. And uh, Joseph uh, asked uh, the brothers to come back with uh, the youngest brother, Benjamin, and, and so on and so forth. So it was a, it's a whole big story, which is not important here. But the important thing is, in the end, when they came back, the brothers, with Benjamin, the youngest son, and Father Jacob, um, Joseph finally uh, told his brothers that he 
was Joseph, um, their brother. And of course, the brothers were extremely frightened and terrified because they thought, oh my God, now this is Joseph and he's got the power, so he will take revenge. But Joseph didn't take revenge. Uh, for him, love uh, in the family and among uh, the brothers was more important than revenge. So he refrained from revenge, but uh, invited them to celebrate a big party with him, also with uh, Jacob and the youngest son, Benjamin. That's the end of it. So here comes my comments about this, uh, this happy end, so to speak. Joseph's love was stronger than the brother's hatred and his generosity greater than their crime. And the brothers were insecure, surprised by Joseph's hospitality and grateful for his generosity. And suddenly, and that's important, they could see Joseph for who he really was. He was a clever guy, sensitive, successful, and different from the others. He had not had success with raising livestock, with hunting deer, or fighting with one another. But he had success with listening, interpreting dreams, using his intuition and using his intelligence. He was, Joseph, was neither better nor worse than the others. He was just different. Maybe he was just more sensitive. And maybe, and here comes the queer glass, the queer glasses, maybe today we would call this guy trans in some way or another, or not clearly male or female, because he had so many so-called female attributes coming along with him. But it's not in the text, and it's not necessary to label him, because, as I've said before, we cannot label uh, a story that has been taking place 2,000 and more years ago with modern terms. But with the queer eye and the queer glasses, it's allowed to speculate and say, this boy, this person was different in very many ways. And it could be that because of the skirt and his love for this colorful, beautiful skirt, there was some trans thing mm. in there too. We don't have to specify that, but it's in the story that there is a little trans thing there too. And we could queer that and dig it out and express it so that people of today can relate to that young man or person of non-binary identity. We don't know that. And relate to the fact that this person, in spite of being different and in spite of being hated, hated by his brothers and put to exile and be, um, you know, put away with, mm. he was a successful guy that in the end uh, got a very powerful person and in the end still he had the power to take revenge, but didn't do it, but suggested 
respect and reconciliation instead. And that's the powerful message of this story. Mm -hmm. God was there with this person, regardless of this person's sexuality, origin, or gender identity, regardless of all the otherness, God was with this person all along. And Joseph, him, her, themselves, was this person that granted respect and reconciliation to the others instead of just taking revenge. So Joseph survived a very traumatic situation of betrayal, loss, home, and exile, and built himself a new existence in a new country with new language, culture, religion, everything. But he was still never forgotten by God and all the people around him. And I want to close this little story again with the poet J. Mace III, who, as I've said before, related Joseph's story to his own life and interpreted it in, in a queer way. And I quote again, Joseph, Josephine Joe, your love has broken through the darkness of reservations. And for the first time, your family has seen you for who you are. So wonderful. Because it was you who saved people from hunger. Dear Joseph of Genesis, Josephina, Joe, I claim your story for every gay, lesbian, queer child who is told that it is unholy for every gay, lesbian, queer person. If you want to live, you must first let your faith die. So that's basically it. The, for me, encouraging story of Joseph, Joseph and his wow adventure story and his brothers. Mm. Brutal violence has not the last word. That is, but there was a safe place for Joseph, Josephine, Joe. Mm. Thank you for this story. I can already see how this can be encouraging and also as a challenge for, for us to think how we can react with love to those that actually caused a lot of pain for us uh, in our growing up and maybe even later history for many. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is the challenges in that story. We could go on forever now are, are evident, as you say. Thanks for mm -hmm. mentioning it. It's, of course, a huge thing to say, well, they basically sold me. They hoped for me being dead, you know, yeah. and still he's not taking revenge. That is quite a thing. Yeah. But on the other hand, his intuition and his way of, you know, his resilient way of dealing with life uh, has brought him a long way, him, her, them, you know, whatever mm. Joseph, mm. Josephine, Joe. Uh, and that is, of course, maybe also the source of energy and hope uh, that uh, Joseph brought all along to Egypt and, you know, throughout his whole life, that he then could be also granting that um, 
happy end or this happy story, the, the turning of that story to others instead of, you know, instead of being just as violent and just as revengeful than his brothers. He wouldn't be any better, would he? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you again for the story. And I hope, dear viewers and listeners, that you are inspired as, as I am. I heard the story from you already at another meeting that we had through the European Forum. Uh, but I'm excited to hear another story if uh, you are willing to share it with us. So what's, what's your next story that you have for us? I brought um, the story of Ruth and Naomi with me. Mm. Uh, many of you might uh, know the two. And if not, I'm going again to summarize a bit of the story and um, comment it with my queer glasses. And again, you can find if you want to read the whole story, uh, we'll put it in the podcast description where you can find it in the Bible. Yeah. So we are talking about the book. It's actually a book with four chapters, Book Ruth, uh, in the Old Testament. And it's, uh, it's supposed to happen to, be, uh, to have happened around 1100 before Christ. So it's a really long time ago. But it's a very interesting story. And the story starts with actually Naomi and, his, uh, and her uh, husband Elimelech uh, in Bethlehem in the south of Israel. Um, And they had two sons, and they uh, went to Moab, a uh, neighboring country at that time. Um, it would probably be Jordani or Syria today, uh, beyond the River Jordan in any case, because in Bethlehem and the surrounding cities, there was a famine. So they had nothing to eat, and they, they were migrants, really, mm. having to leave their place because there was... Uh, you know, nothing to to live on anymore. So it was, of course, a very dangerous uh, way to get there. It was difficult and uh, leaving everything behind. I mean, migrants can tell all these stories. Refugees yeah. can tell all these stories. We have those stories today, too. But they got successfully to and safely to Moab, uh, settled down. And in the end, uh, to shorten that part, The two sons uh, married two women from Moab. One woman was, woman was called Orpah, and the other one was called Ruth. So mm. here we hear from Ruth for the first time. So she was from Moab, from a different country, spoke a different language, and had a different religion than Naomi and Elimelech. The story goes on like this. Um, in the next years, uh, Elimelech, the father, and the two sons, all the three died for different reasons. Um, you know, age, uh, disease, uh, accident. All the three men were dead. Mm. So um, now we have the situation that there is uh, Naomi as a widow and the two uh, daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And uh, when you know uh, a little bit of, of the socio-political situations of, for women in those ages, we're talking about 1,000 years before Christ, uh, it's been a very patriarchal system. So widows, women without men were not worth anything. It was hard for them to survive. So basically what they had to do is find new men again in order to feel secure mm -hmm. and socially accepted again. 
so for all of that reason, for the loss of uh, husband and uh, the two sons and all the rest of it, Naomi decided to go back to Bethlehem, to her home city, where she knows the language, where she knows the laws and had uh, counted uh, and thought that she had more um, chances to survive there rather than being a foreigner in Moab. Mm. And she told her two daughters-in-law, and she said, well, you stay here because you come from Moab, you speak the language, you are um, natives, and try to find new uh, husbands, and I go back to Bethlehem. That should be the best way of doing it. Uh, so they, the two daughters-in-law uh, accompanied Naomi to the River Jordan. Uh, that's where really the, the border at that time was between Moab and Israel. And when they said goodbye, no, Orpah, one daughter, really went, uh, said goodbye uh, and cried uh, because of uh, the goodbye scenery, but turned around and went back to Moab. And Ruth, the other daughter-in-law, said to Naomi, no, I will come with you. And I quote what she really said in chapter 1, verse 16. Don't persuade to leave me, and, uh, me to leave you. I want to go with you. Where you go, I want to go. And where you live, I want to live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I want to die too. And there I want to be buried. God, do this and that to me. Only death will part me from you. Mm. Quote, unquote. So, um, some remarks from where we are now in the story. The first, this promise from Ruth, the uh, daughter-in-law to Naomi, is very remarkable. It's a powerful sign of loyalty and care. It actually sounds like a lover's oath to the loved one. Um, and in fact, just to clarify that for those who haven't recognized the text yet, this verse from Ruth is very often used for in heterosexual weddings. Mm. Um, you know, as biblical verse of like an oath of loyalty between the two partners. And most of the heterosexual couples do not even know that the quotation comes from the book of Ruth, where one woman is saying that to another woman. Mm. And that is at least worth the while to acknowledge that and recognize that and put it into the context where it's actually spoken. Of course, it can be quoted by somebody else too, but it's nice to know that it's one woman saying that to another woman. Yeah. And of course, it is um, a daughter of law saying it to you know, to a family member. But it is saying a woman to another woman. And she, Ruth, is really um, leaving everything behind. Again, everybody who has migrated already or has been a refugee knows that. I mean, she really clearly says, um, your God will be my God, which means she will put aside her religion, her faith, uh, where you live, I want to live. Where you die, I want to 
die and be buried too. So she's leaving her country, her culture, her language, everything behind in order to come with her. That is quite a step. And it's uh, knowing that women do not didn't count anything at that time, widows and women without men, it's saying even more so that they were both taking a huge risk and certainly Ruth, who came to Bethlehem then as a foreigner. Uh, so um, now reading it with my queer glasses, I'm not saying that they were, um, you know, um, a, a couple mm -hmm. or loving one another. But yes, yeah. they were loving one another. But of yeah. course, in, in ways that we don't know today. Again, just like with Joseph in this other story, we cannot apply terms of the 21st century, be it, you know, um, uh, same-sex uh, partnership or anything to, to a story that, yeah. that, is, uh, that has uh, taken place more than thousands of years ago. But it's striking how uh, extremely loyal, warm, and loving these two women were with one another. And it's striking that's actually in the text that it's not been revised or taken out of the text. Um, it, it has been so powerful that it was necessary for the authors of this book to put it down and not delete it. Yeah. Um, so... Now to just finish, also finish this story, how did it continue? They both safely arrived in Bethlehem, moved to the still vacant house of Elimelech, uh, Naomi's um, already dead late husband. Um, he still had this house there, so they could move into that house and at least have a place to stay. But they didn't have a living. And um, But Naomi, as a good Jew, a Jewish um woman knew that there was um, a Jewish law saying that a brother-in-law of the dead husband should uh, marry the woman so that the woman would be um, uh, secure again and, uh, you know, a member of a social setting. Family was much more than just a, um, a modern family. It really was um, almost a community and, of course, also... Uh, life insurance because they didn't have such thing then insurances at that time so that yeah. the 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 goal was of course to have children so basically to sh to to shorten the story Naomi arranged a meeting between her um, um, uh, brother-in-law Boaz and Ruth um, and uh, Boaz was quite wealthy they had fields so they could collect uh, fruits that were left in the fields as they did in, in Judaism at the time to always leave um, um, grain and fruit for, for widows and marginalized people that's what Ruth did and in the end Ruth and uh, Boaz got a couple married and Ruth got a son And um, this and Naomi uh, entered that household too. As the mother-in-law of Ruth, she entered that new uh, family system um, again and was secured herself. So in the end, there was Ruth, Boaz and Naomi and the little newborn child, which was called Obed. 
And by the way, just uh, in little brackets, Obed was the grandfather of King David, mm. uh, the later king of Israel, who came. And now here comes the queer glasses again, or the modern glasses again, who came out of a patchwork family. Because uh, this patchwork family was uh, Ruth and Boaz. Boaz was much older than Ruth. And the, the, the bondage in the text, when you read the text, and please do it, um, the loving bond was between Ruth and Naomi. And Boaz was there too. He was important. And of course, in a patriarchal system, also necessary to, to keep up uh, the structures so that everybody could survive. So what I, what, I, um, what I want to say here is that the two women very active, uh, play a very active role in this, uh, in this story. And Naomi was figuring out this, um, this um, brother-in-law um, marriage so that Ruth had a secure place in, uh, in Bethlehem. Naomi had a secure place in Bethlehem by being part of that bigger multi-generational family. We could call it patchwork family. And the new son could be born so that uh, the duties were, uh, were done, so to speak. And, um, but it was a patchwork family. And today, my glasses say, we could also call it rainbow family. Mm. And again, I know we cannot use that term rainbow family to a story that has taken place thousands of years ago. But we are allowed to speculate and recognize that the, lo the loyalty and the energy and the bonds in that story were between Ruth and Naomi. There were the driving forces of what happened in that story. Mm -hmm. And uh, since this remarkable quotation of Ruth, uh, the, the oath of loyalty is up to this day quoted in heterosexual marriages, um, it also shows how powerful this oath from Ruth to Naomi actually was and still is even for readers of today. So it is allowed, I think, to say that it was um, something like a, a promise, um, a, a love promise, love in all the different shades that we can think of. And I leave it up to the reader uh, to, you know, to say what it is. But there is definitely a special bond between Ruth and Naomi. And that's why, again, this story is extremely encouraging for queer readers because they can read between the lines as they have very often, they very often do with, uh, you know, with, uh, with all kinds of literature and stories and um, um, now series in, uh, in cinema or on TV uh, where they can read between the lines and uh, imagine that there could have been more between the women without knowing it. So we have to leave that open. That has to be clear. But mm -hmm. there is something, a special something between Ruth and Naomi uh, that is... Uh, that is worth being recognized and it's worth being remembered. That's mm. what I would say as a queer theologian. So mm. it could also be a very encouraging story for rainbow families of today. Mm. 
Yeah, it's it's what you said. It's actually recognizing ourselves and our context in something that is mentioned or told in the Bible, although it's it's another context. And that doesn't mean that, you know, they're really talking about a same-sex couple, but it is something that it is can encourage us as if we are in a same-sex relationship to know this is something that is you know same-sex love is something that is obviously shown as something also important and beautiful within the bible of course we don't know if there was also an more intimate part a sexual part to all of this but it doesn't matter it is it is talking about love between two women so yeah dear viewers and listeners get encouraged and uh, take the text you can even maybe find some other people that uh, you can read it with and talk about it and maybe discover some other parts that are interesting to you uh, through the queer glasses that Kirsten was talking about so tell me do you have anything from the new testament that you can share with us (laughs) I uh, brought one last story. I mean, I could bring you more, but uh, of course we have to, yeah. uh, you know, make a decision here and focus. Otherwise we will talk forever. I love to talk to you, by the way. But uh, yeah, um, I brought a story from Acts. Um, that is uh, the story of the uh, the first Christians after Christ has supposedly uh, you know, being crucified and risen on the third day. So now here are all the people like Peter, Paul, and all the rest of the apostles and friends trying to figure out how to live on without Jesus in, in their midst. And uh, so the book of Acts in the eighth chapter is um, is introducing an interesting person to us. And this person is called the eunuch of Ethiopia. Now, eunuch is a very uh, ancient word um, in English, and maybe even some English people don't know what it means. Um, it is somebody non-binary, really, a, a either castrated person that at the time uh, very often has uh, lived close to kings and queens in order uh, you know, to be the first servant, so to speak. Of course, always a lower social position than kings and queens at the court but uh, not dan- he, he, this person was seen not to be dangerous because this person was castrated or mm-hmm. a eunuch a non-binary strange kind of person we can see that even today in in places in other places where those eunuchs were close consultancy persons uh, which were seen as not powerful and not dangerous because they were no real male Mm. men you know Mm. so we leave it open what was meant uh, at that uh, with that term eunuch but somehow non-binary we would say today none you know not clear male or female so Mm. so it's it's remarkable that in the bible by the way there are some more stories about it but that's uh, enough uh, for today where eunuchs are are um play an active role in the Bible. And now this is a story in the New Testament about a eunuch from Ethiopia. And I tell you the story and comment on it again. Okay, so I tell you about um, Act 8, the eunuch of Ethiopia. 
The story starts with the Apostle Philip, one of the apostles that was now trying to figure out what to do uh, with his life after Jesus has uh, resurrected and how to bring the message of Jesus to the world. He was traveling, Philip was traveling on a desert road and he, there he met a black eunuch Uh, from Ethiopia that he of course only found out when he was uh, stopping starting to talk with this guy and he saw this black guy uh, sitting in a chariot reading the Bible so he was obviously even though he came from Ethiopia he was um, uh, familiar with um, the Jewish Old Testament the Jewish text he was actually uh, reading in, uh, in the book of the prophet Isaiah That's what is said in uh, the biblical story of Acts. So he was interested in these stories. It's not clear whether he, uh, this black eunuch was a Jew himself or whether he was converted, had been uh, converted to Judaism or was interested in religion in general. That's not clear. But he was reading uh, from the book of the prophet Isaiah. So then um, this black um, foreigner invited Philip to get into his chariot. Chariot is um, an, an old vehicle, so to speak, at that time that were used with horses or, um, you know, to, to get through the desert. Philip uh, took the invitation, uh, sat down with, um, with this guy and talked with him. And when he saw that um, this guy was reading uh, the prof from the book of the prophet Isaiah, Uh, they were talking about religious text, and finally, uh, Philip started to talk about Jesus Christ and uh, what he and others had experienced uh, together with Jesus and talking about what Jesus did and what he preached and uh, about his death and resurrection. And in the end, uh, this eunuch from Ethiopia Uh, was so fascinated with uh, Jesus Christ and the community that he in the end said, um, I would like to be baptized. I would like to be part of this. So, and he saw somewhere close uh, a little pond with water. And he said to Philip, well, there is water. Is there any obstacle? Uh, um, could you please baptize me? And uh, the biblical uh, text ends with um, the comment, well, Philip did as he was asked to. He baptized uh, the eunuch, the black guy, the foreigner, with another religious background, uh, a treasurer uh, from the court of Ethiopia, without any further ado. And after that, he said goodbye and went off. That's the story, a very small one. Mm. Um, well, this story is remarkable again, because first of all, it's not mentioning just uh, a black guy, a treasurer from the court in Egypt, but he was a eunuch. Secondly, um, it must have been a very close um, meeting between Philip and uh, this guy, who unfortunately doesn't have a name. Mm. Um, Because, first of all, the eunuch was very fascinated with Philip told him about Jesus Christ and the Christian community. And secondly, Philip was very, must have been very, um, uh, 
very uh, fascinated by the eunuch because he was so steadfast and curious and wanted to know all of that so that they really had a good conversation that's that's what you can really clearly read in in that uh, in that little uh, text so it was a meaningful encounter for both of them not only for the eunuch but also for philip both were in that very much so so that there were no obstacles whatsoever for philip to baptize uh, uh, the eunuch in the end um, so and that is important now because it shows two things or even more about the baptism at that time baptism was not an elite exclusive things for people who had been you know studying uh, jewish law and uh, stu studied uh, the 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 story life and death of jesus christ for um, for decades and it was not restricted to people having uh, done, I don't know, many degrees uh, at any kind of, um, you know, education that they had at that time. It was Twelve not... steps of becoming a Christian. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. And it was not, uh, you know, reserved for white people. It was not reserved for male people because there were also female women were uh, playing an important role uh, at the early times of Christianity you know, being just as important as men. Uh, we can read those stories in the letters of St. Paul too. And then there were those non-binary or those people like eunuchs that were not clearly identifiable male or female because they were castrated or because of other reasons. They were somewhere in between and they were, you know, and it was no obstacle. He was black, it was no obstacle. He was foreign, it was no obstacle. He was speaking another language, it was no obstacle. He was a eunuch and it was no obstacle. So, and that is extremely important about the understanding of baptism. In our first session, I already had a little a part about a Christian baptism, which was always from the beginning thinking of diversity in unity. You know, the body of Christ that consists of many different people with all their different and diverse backgrounds, with regardless of their origin, color of skin, regardless of their sexuality and uh, gender identity. Um, they were even, it was even seen as necessary to be different and diverse because everybody was bringing their qualifications and talents along to the one body of Christ. Uh, so that all these different talents, perspectives, and life stories could together be this one rich, diverse uh, uh, body of Christ, diversity in unity, the, to put it short. And this eunuch, this black foreign eunuch from Ethiopia, was now part of that, of that um, diversity of unity and his uh, non-binary gender identity, as we would call it today, was no obstacle to being part of that. So um, in that sense, it's an important and again, a very encouraging story for everybody also nowadays who is different in so many different ways, you know, different um, according to heteronormative uh, structures and uh, binary uh, dualistic rules of male and female. Uh, yes, hey, 
you are welcome. If you are interested in Christian uh, stories, if you are interested in what happened to Jesus Christ, what he taught, what he preached, with whom he had contact, and he had contact to outsiders, to all the marginalized, and put it put those people into the center of his teaching and his being, then you're more than welcome. Be part of it. And take responsibility so that we can build this one body of Christ even stronger. And so in that sense, again, I would say with my queer eye and my queer glasses, uh, it's a it's a very welcoming, encouraging story for everybody. All those who feel different for all the very many reasons, including non-binary people, inter-trans and uh, queer people, to be part of this um, body of Christ, to be part of a very equal, inclusive and affirming community uh, that is that can be uh, seen in the Bible. So who are we nowadays that in power structures and institutions of churches tell this and that and the other people, you're not in there. You're excluded because of this reason, because of that reason. You have to do this, that, and the other things before you can be part of it. No. Baptism here, and it comes in very many other stories, is given without any preconditions, you know, the only thing is you have to be interested, of course, in being part of it. Otherwise, you wouldn't ask for it. And you would like to learn something about Jesus and his telling, his life and his preachings, his deeds and what he said. If you're open and interested in that and want to be part of it and take your share of responsibility of building up this open and inclusive uh, community, you are more than welcome. Mm -hmm. That, of course, is not literally in that text. That's what I, you know, uh, that's how I resonate to this text. So, again, it's a very subjective interpretation with my queer glasses. But I claim that it's in there because it's about a non-binary eunuch, a black guy from e e Ethiopia, who was one of the first Christians um, that were told uh, you know, about um, that got baptized by somebody who uh, had no objections and no trouble with including this guy. Why should he? He was interested, he was fascinated, and he was open to the new community. So he got part of it. And in that sense, I would say he got also, he, he, um, he was not excluded anymore, but he was... Um, part of an equal uh, community, an inclusive community. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Kerstin, so much, uh, especially for taking so much time and sharing your knowledge, your ideas and your passion for queer theology with uh, all of us. Uh, it was certainly an inspiration for me. I hope it was uh, an inspiration for all of you who are watching. As always, uh, just tell others about this podcast, uh, share it with others that could have that could use an encouragement and see other stories and maybe even figure out or find out about another way how we can approach the Bible that was 
so often used for many of us as a weapon against us and not so much as an encouragement. So thank you, Kerstin, for showing us that the Bible can be used as an encouragement and hope for the LGBTIQ uh, people, of course, and plus people. Um, so thank you for being with us. Thank you, dear viewers you. and listeners. <laughs> yes, thank you for taking this time. As I said, uh, you can find different resources in the podcast description if you want to find out more about queer theology. And of course, there is the first part of this podcast where you can hear a little bit more about what queer theology is. If you want to donate, support uh, this podcast or the European Forum, you can do it. Uh, everything is in the podcast podcast description. Thank you, Michael, for your work. Thanks for your smart questions and your um, curiosity. Uh, that was extremely helpful also for me to try to focus on the things that I want to tell. It's not easy stuff. And uh, thank you so much for having me here. Uh, I really enjoyed being with you in, in your podcast. All the best and God's blessings for, for the future of this podcast. And uh, I'm already looking forward to listening to many other interesting and exciting speakers. Thank you, Kerstin. It means a lot to get this feedback. Um, you know, often when you are exposed, people think, oh, he knows that, you know, the podcast is good or that we like it, but we don't. <laughs> so it's always people, I guess you know it as a pastor, Absolutely. how it is. People think that people who are in front somewhere, they don't need feedback, but we always do. So if you want to give us feedback or you even have an idea of a certain topic that you would like please contact uh, us over you can you can use the contact uh, part of the priceless webpage um, and just send your suggestions ideas or questions or whatever you you have so not to make it any longer thank you for sticking with us uh, and uh, see you next week until then we're both saying goodbye bye goodbye. everyone bye bye everyone